Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Athos Business Optimization Podcast. I'm your host, Jason St. Clair. So today, I'm going to share a lecture with Professor Eric Von Hippel on developing breakthrough products and services. Who does it? Users or manufacturers? If you listen to any of the prior lectures or any of the prior podcasts that I have uh, done, I think you guys may have an idea. Maybe it's one or the other, or maybe it's both. All right, guys, if you guys enjoy this, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on iTunes, go ahead and give me a five-star. Appreciate it. It helps the podcast grow. All right, everybody, take care. Once again, it's Jason with the Athos Business Optimization Podcast. Enjoy. Well, I want to welcome you. This is going to be really cool. This is going to be really fun. And uh, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy yourselves. Uh, I'm going to... This, is, this course is about creating breakthroughs. Now, um, what you'll see is that methods for sort of doing incremental innovations are reasonably well in shape, but methods to do breakthroughs are really not. And so what we have is for you is really the leading edge ways to identify breakthroughs. And uh, now, why would you care? Well, basically, it turns out that once you have, as a manager, once you have managed to take all the cost out, once you have managed to be as efficient as you can, then really, to grow, you need major innovations. You can't continue to do all these minor things. What happens is, as you'll see, things become commodities. Now, firms are not stupid and they realize this. And so what the manager or the CEO often does is he says something like, we must have new products. We must have major new products. He says, yeah. And so then what they do is they uh, uh, continue to produce incremental ones because nobody knows how to make major ones. And the manager is even fiercer. He says something like, we must have one-third of our products brand new within five years. And so then everybody gets into this mad exercise where they change the SKUs on their existing products. You know, <laughs> They say, well, let's see. What is your definition of really new, boss? Well, a new SK... Ah. I'm in good shape. Uh, now, uh, by the way, that is Kareem Lakani. Kareem is your gentle, kind, friendly TA. And uh, uh, he will uh, be able to advise you, as will I, uh, as we go. Now, so now with respect to agenda, today I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction first. Uh, we're going to talk about who really develops breakthroughs because people organize the innovation process around the way they think it works. And so we'll set that in place and then we'll talk about the course logistics, how it should work and uh, what the paper is like and all those other things that you want to know before you decide whether you want anything to do with this. Okay? So who am I? I'm running the TIE group here. We, we used to be called MTIE and then we got ourselves in wonderful shape and call ourselves TIE, Technological Innovation and Entrepreneurship Group. And uh, I know a bit of economics and I know a bit of uh, uh, innovation and so forth and so on. I've been studying it for 30 years or so now. And you may find it comforting to know that I also have a real-world innovation experience. So that um, one of the things that's really helpful for people when they're trying to do research on something or teach something is to go out there and actually do it first. And so, you know, many of sort of the formative experiences I had as to what were the important questions came from looking at uh, uh, where, where, uh, uh, where innovation comes from, how it works, and so on in, in my own company. Now, my research focus is the fuzzy front end. It is a funny term, isn't it? But that's what they use. It's the, it's, the, it's the end of the innovation process that nobody knows how to do anything about, which is, where does the idea for the breakthrough come from in the first place? Okay, that's, that's what I study. And I should say that the reason I began to study that 
was rooted in an experience in my own uh, firm way back when, which was we, we made fax machines. And, and I was, it was my first job. Uh, I was 26. And uh, um, we started this company. And, and it, it was, again, it was a stock market boom back then. So all of a sudden, we were 400 people. And we were designing this stuff. And I was always designing myself into corners. I was running the R&D. You know, I would sort of lay it out like this, and it was going to be so great. And then we ended up with this little thing in the corner where we had space for something crucial I'd forgotten about. And it was, oh my god. So that amounted to saying that I, as a buyer of something, wanted something special. And my experience generally was that I would go to these companies who were supposed to supply this stuff, and they were not helpful. Now, the conventional wisdom, as you know, is sort of find a need and fill it. You know, marketing research comes along, and they look deep into your eyes, and they say, ah, you know, I know what you need. Well, that wasn't my experience. You know, far from that, I remember once we had to make a little fan. And it had to be sort of a higher power fan than, than these companies could make. So I went to this firm, and I said, well, we need a, a fan like that with certain pressure and so on. And they said, well, can't be done, my son. And I said, well, but I need it, being in a jam. And they said, yeah, but it's against the laws of nature. I said, oh. So we went off to Princeton, where they don't know about the laws of nature, and then asked them, an aerodynamicist down there, to design us the fan, which they did. So we brought the fan back to this company and said, OK, will you manufacture this lovely fan? They said, well, we told you it wouldn't work. So of course, they tested it, and it did. But never mind, leaving that aside, if we make it for you, you have to buy them 10,000 at a whack, and uh, uh, you have to pay for the tooling. So fine, we did that. They started sending us the fans, and then we got this embarrassed phone call which said something along the lines of, uh, turns out other people want that too. And I said, oh. And being only 26, I didn't say, ah, we own the tooling. We will grind you into the dust. You know, I didn't say that. Instead, I said, that's cool. Make them for other people too. So they did. But the surprising thing about it, and the thing that made me puzzle about the conventional wisdom about how breakthroughs come about, was the advertisements these people then put into the trade press, which were fascinating. They had real pronoun trouble. It was, they said it couldn't be done. <laughs> they said it was against the laws of nature. But we knew deep down that you would need this thing. So I thought, gee, you know, maybe it isn't true that the way this thing works is the way that one sort of is taught that it works. So that's why I began to study these kinds of things, to understand. Once you know how it works, you can understand how to make it better. And these are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about in this class. And then just FYI, the kinds of things that we have studied these phenomena on are both industrial and consumer products. And on the consumer product side, it's things like uh, uh, skateboards and wonderful stuff like that. And if we get a little time today, I'm going to show you a little piece of a video um, that uh, actually shows the innovators of skateboards. And they're, of course, all 13. Uh, OK, now, again, periodic major innovation is essential. Everything becomes a commodity eventually and may even be entirely supplanted. 3M scotch tape, do you even know what that is? Yeah, you know what scotch tape is, right? I mean, it's generic now, right? That was invented decades ago. And then how did they keep that going? They did marginal improvements. You know, you could write on the tape. Oh, cool. Double-sided tape. What they noticed was that people were, I don't know, you've probably done that yourself. They were making sort of a loop of the stuff, right? And right, and taping it and saying, oh, OK, double-sided. Right? And then they noticed that one of the things that happened when you did this loop was you could put it on a lumpy wall and it would still be OK. And when they had their double-sided tape, it wouldn't because the tape was thin. So they said, oh, OK, foam tape, double-sided foam tape. And so they put foam in the middle to do what you were doing here. And all these variations 
decorated gift tapes. They noticed that people used this stuff to wrap packages. So I said, great, we'll print the decoration on it. That one didn't go very well because, of course, it never matched your, your paper. Aspirin. Look at that stuff. Buffered, coated, child-sized, flavored, liquid. You know, you have this basic innovation. You can spin it out for a long time. And incremental innovation is very important. But to get the stuff, the basic innovation, to spin out over time is a crucial matter. You have to do it once in a while. Companies are aware of it. They generally don't know how. Okay, now, in this, uh, in this class, I'm going to be telling you about breakthrough versus incremental innovation. And so we ought to sort of discuss that for a minute. And this, this term, people have used breakthroughs in lots of ways, you know, technical breakthrough and so on and so forth. But what we're talking about is the first member of a major product line in the firm. Okay? So in scientific instruments, it will be the first gas chromatograph. You know, and then uh, improved gas chromatographs would be improvements, incremental improvements. Okay, analogously, masking tape. Okay, you know the first masking tape, the idea that you could sort of mask for painting and so on, and then improvements to that, so that you can go around corners a little better and better dispensers and all the rest of that would be incremental. Now, as I mentioned. Why, of course, I'm developing breakthroughs? Because periodically they're essential. Now, I'm astonished uh, at how rare they are, but they're essential. And firms are pretty good at incremental innovation, but they don't know how to develop breakthroughs systematically. And the result is that major innovations are often very rare and desperately sought by management. Now, you'll see as we go along that we've done work in a bunch of companies sort of showing them how to do this. And uh, the histories of these companies in terms of how often they come up with something fundamental, it's amazingly rare. I mean, and if you think about companies that you know about, look at Dell Computer, right? What have they done? They've done this sort of build it to demand thing. And they've been doing that and doing that and doing that. Is there a major innovation in there? Beyond that, not clear. And yet, look, they've built this huge company on it. So in a way, what happens is that these companies, you'll see that there becomes resistance to innovating again because you're sort of built into the way you used to do things. One of the things we'll talk about is resistance to innovation. But what you'll see is that these huge companies often are engines with but a single idea. And if you can come up with another one, you've done something humongous for them. Okay, now, what we'll talk about in this class is not only sort of how to do it, but we'll bring up the problem that it's hard to implement even if you know what to do. You know, it's, it's funny, yesterday I was talking to, this company was calling Ralston uh, Purina, which is a, you know, dog food company or something. And uh, we were talking about innovations, and we were talking about the fact that they really have two major problems. One is to find the innovation, and the other is to implement it. And that implementation, actually getting this thing through the company, is an equally difficult job. You know, companies just, you're from Moog, eh? You're nodding as to, uh, yes, yes, been there, done that. Uh huh. Um, now, it's sort of amazing because you look at this thing and you say, well, innovation is obviously a good thing, right? Who could be against it? And then you see these amazing things, like you know, for instance, that the British introduced uh, lime years ago into their, they're called limeys, and they introduced lime to their sailors as a way to prevent scurvy. It took, after the demonstration that this was by naval people themselves, it took 200 years 
to introduce it, to actually get it in there. To the Navy. Meanwhile, as they're sailing along, they're throwing half their crews overboard, dead, needless to say, of scurvy. 200 years. And then it took another 50 years to get it over to the merchant marine. Now, these kinds of things are stunning. And we tend to stand around and say things like, well, must be because uh, not invented here. But what it really is, is that there's enlightened self-interest involved in whether you do or do not innovate. Firms are built around doing something efficiently. If you introduce something new, what you often do is disrupt the patterns which allow them to sort of meet their quotas. What you do is you sort of set up numbers on things like you say, well, you know what, you're going to be rewarded, you're the manufacturing director, you're going to be rewarded by the amount of scrap you produce. The less scrap, the better off you are. Your bonus is on it. And then along comes somebody waltzing in from R&D and says, I've got this great new thing. Let's put it in. You're thinking, if I put in this new thing, boy, is there going to be a lot of scrap while we figure out how to do this. No, I don't want to do that. So you'll find that even if for the firm it's a matter of life and death, you will find that within the firm as departments and individuals, there are lots of reasons to not do it. Okay. Change obsoletes corporate expertise and production investments. Polaroid produces instant film and cameras. Remember the death of Polaroid, right? The death of Polaroid was fascinating because, fascinating, they were always coming around to MIT and saying, you know what, we really should get into digital, right? Yeah. Okay, we're going to set up a group to do digital. And they would set up this group to do digital and that group would get beaten on. They would look at these things, you know, you'd create a digital image, and they'd look at this thing and they'd say, that's not as good as what we normally do. That's no good. Close down the group. And they did this several times. We'll get into why this might be. Kodak is a current example. Change devalues your personal intellectual property. If I know COBOL, Am I going to want C++? Yeah. My secretary, uh, years ago, when they were introducing word processors, you know, she'd have to learn how to do this thing. It wasn't her problem how quickly the paper was written. It was my problem. So I ordered one of these things, and uh, it should have come in, and it should have come in. And finally I asked her, and I said, well, so where's the word processor? She said, oh, I had it installed. I said, good. She said, I said, well, where is it? She said, oh, I had it installed in the supply closet. Right? <laughs> so, you know, there it was firmly wired in with a LAN in the back of a supplies closet. So, so, I mean, again, it wasn't that she said, I will not do this. She just managed to make it impossible to proceed to the next step, you know, <laughs> with the best goodwill in mind. Okay, so now, in this course, we are going to talk about contrasting innovation methods. We're going to talk about sort of fundamentally different ways to find big ideas or small ideas and to innovate. The traditional methods are based on find a need and fill it. Okay? They are going to your target market users and saying, what do you want? As you'll see as we go, that ends up being something about incremental innovation. And then there are new methods based on finding, encouraging, commercializing solutions developed by users themselves. So for example, in the case of the skateboard, it's not that you as a manufacturer go and interview these kids. Say, now children, what would you like? Well, let's see, we would like to come near death. 
And so probably what we'd like is a board that's totally uncontrolled that will allow us to go down the hill and come near death, oftentimes. Uh, first of all, a manufacturer probably not want to do that. But secondly, they couldn't sort of come up with it. It wouldn't work. What happened instead is that the kids started building skateboards for themselves. You know, the reason they're called skateboards is they took skates and they put them under boards and went sailing down the hill. So the kids were well along the way. This group, in other words, lead users over here were well along the way towards innovation by the time this group knew anything about it. And so basically what you'll see is the distinction is these new methods that actually go after needs and solutions at the same time. You didn't say to those kids, what do you think you need? You said, oh, I see you're careering down the hill on a skateboard. Aha! And then you bring it over here, whereas these people would say something like, hmm, I'd really like my bicycle to go a little faster or something like that. Okay? So, now, what I'm going to talk to you about in the next uh, bit of this lecture is how we discovered the role of users. And to do that, I just have to give you some essential definitions. Okay? What we're talking about here, and what I'm going to do, by the way, because I know that chatting is also important, there's going to be an exercise in here in a little bit where you get to say hello to your neighbor, which is always a sound strategy. And then I want you to talk about a user innovation you know something about. Okay? So I'm going to tell you about user innovation. I'm going to give you some examples. And then, since the half-life of unused knowledge is about a nanosecond, I want you to play with it. Okay, and we'll do that throughout the course. You'll start to play with this stuff and, and, and sort of see whether you believe it. Okay? So I know it's much more fun when you chat. Your time to chat is coming. Okay? So what we're talking about, first of all, is let's take an innovation. Innovation is actually anything new that's put into the marketplace. It's different than an invention. Okay? An invention is a legal term that says if something meets certain standards of novelty, then that thing is an invention. But you could take that thing that you developed, say something wonderful that passes a standard like anti-gravity. Okay? You could take anti-gravity and you could throw it in the basement, assuming anti-gravity goes down. You could throw it in the basement and store it. Never put it into the marketplace. It does not become an innovation. It's only an innovation when it's used. Okay? An innovation can be something trivial or non-trivial. It can be anything from anti-gravity that's used to a new pop-top on a can. But then it's an innovation. Okay, now we're talking about the functional source of innovation. An innovation is a user innovation when the developer expects to benefit from using it. Now this is not just you as an individual. Okay? This is you also as a firm. So take Boeing, for example. Boeing is a user innovator when it develops, say, a new machine to build airplanes because it's trying to use it. Right? Boeing, that same firm, is a manufacturer innovator when it develops a new airplane to sell. Okay? So you, when you try to develop something to uh, protect you from your brother when you're growing up or your sister, and there's just not something on the market that works. You, know, you just cannot buy the proper brother's scaring device. So you have to develop your own. Again, you're a user innovator. You're not planning to sell that to all the neighbor kids. You are actually doing that for yourself. Okay? So whether you're an individual or a firm, if your reason is to use it, then you're a user. Okay? If your reason is to benefit from selling it, you're a manufacturer. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you uh, three slides here showing how we do this. Okay? How do we find out where the innovations come from? Now, you remember that I told you that the standard model is find a need and fill it. That is, the manufacturer goes and takes a look to see what average users want. Makes sense, they're the target market. And then comes back and innovates. 
So what we wanted to do was to see whether this was true. Now this happens to be scientific instruments, but what we actually did was this over a bunch of things, uh, you know, like sports equipment and so on and so forth. The point here is that what we do is we take these product lines. You see, if you're a manufacturer, you have a product line, right? These represent product lines for your company. So what would you like to know? You'd like to know where the major innovations come from over time. If there's a pattern in that, then you can do it again. If you mistake what the pattern is, then in fact you're going about it the wrong way. And you'll see that this is the case. So, find a need and fill it would say, these major improvements consist of us going out there to the field and figuring out what's needed. User innovation would say, the user develops it. Okay? So, what did we do? We went out into the field and we looked at the first company to commercialize each of these things. In this case it was instruments and there were about a hundred plus. We said to them, who invented this wonderful device? You or somebody else? And they said, well, we did, my son. Thought, oh, damn. Conventional wisdom is right after all. This is so painful. So we would push the matter. We would say, well, did you get any input from users, living or dead? I'd say, certainly not. And when you sell us our gold plaque, be sure to spell our names right. Well, we then went into these, we were all techies, so now we were exploring to see where these innovations came from, and our goal was to find out whether users had anything to do with it. So we would talk to these people and we would say, okay, well, let's see what we can do here to make uh, lemonade out of lemons. Can you tell us how this innovation occurred? And they would start the story with great confidence, but always as we pushed toward the beginning of the story, there was this funny little glitch, which was that at the beginning of the story, it appeared that oftentimes the story would start with the ceiling opened up one day and a prototype fell out. You'd sort of say, well, hell of a ceiling, you know? I wish I had a ceiling like that. Well, when we went behind it, we found out that in 80% of the cases, it was actually the users that had developed it. And those were users' prototypes that fell out of the ceiling. And that was a very different take on the innovation process. So, for example, lead in blood. You know, children eat paint off the wall with containing lead because it tastes sweet. And the, the level of lead that was causing the brain damage could not be seen with the instruments at the time. So, who improved the instruments? Well, it was the doctors doing the studies. And then what would happen is they would publish the information about how to do it. And five to seven years later, people would start pounding on these commercializing instrument companies saying, for God's sake, we're sick of modifying this equipment in the lab. Why don't you just make your darn machine that way in the first place? Now that's a hugely different version of the innovation process. It converts the whole issue about how you find innovations from the issue of how do we invent internally the next new thing to how do we find the next new thing out there. We'll get into that later. But here's the data on this where you see that basically these are all the major improvement innovations. All the first ones were done by users and the major improvements, 80% of them. Now, to say done by users, we don't mean that the user just had the idea. We mean that the user built it and used it, actually built it. Now, what I'm going to do to give you a feeling for this is I'm going to show you some examples. And then you're going to, as I say, have your own. Okay? So, here we go. Here's an automated radioimmunoassay system. This was actually done, it's an example of a scientific instrument system. It was the first one. It was done in the uh, University of Virginia by people who had to do a heart study and they had to do 20,000 analyses. Now, before this, these analyses were done by hand. And you can get a graduate student to do a lot of stuff, but you can't get even a graduate student to do it 20,000 times. So what do you do? You start to work and make something that'll do it for you. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? 
So what they did though is they didn't start from scratch and nothing. They took pieces of things that were around, right? They took a little sampling thing here. They took a pump that was commercial. They took valves and so on. They took a computer that was commercial. And they built the pieces and put it together to do what they needed to do. Now we begin to understand why companies might think that they do it. Because this thing, this user prototype, is not ready to have Hewlett Packard slapped on the corner. Can't ship it like this. Got to do a lot. Looks better later. But the operating principles are there. This is the way that the commercial one was built. Now, once we began to understand this in scientific instruments, we began to see these things all over the place. Anybody know what that is? Um, any clue? Do you remember we used to have a Mount St. Helens? And then it turned to dust one day. Remember it blew up? This is two days later. And um, basically what you see is user innovation. These are police cars. And what we have here is the problem was that the cars were stopping because there was so much dust in the air. You know, there was so much dust in the air that the air filter of the car that was normally there would just immediately get blocked and the cars wouldn't run. So this is two days later and the solution's not fully standardized, you understand? But uh, what's going on here is that they're taking what's around to solve their problem. So this is the kind of a hose that we use in the United States to, to attach our dryer to the wall, our clothes dryer. Flexible plastic hose. This is duct tape, you know, the universal anti-solvent. And you can see here, what happens is one end goes to the engine and the other end goes to the big filter system. So here appears to go to the prisoner's lungs as a pre-cleaning <laughs> device. But actually, uh, what's going on there is I called them up and asked. I was trying to get my data firsthand. So they actually they said, no, 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 we would never do that. We're not that dumb. So what we did was we ran the hose and it goes into the trunk through the back uh, thing, whatever. So they have a big filter. Now, why do you suppose that the manufacturer didn't do that. Why didn't the user write a letter to the Purolator company saying, we've got trouble out here, want to do something? Why do you think? Anybody got any reasons? It would take forever. They needed it now. Yeah. Why would it take forever? Because they, the company would have to discuss it, design it, discuss it again, review it, <laughs> put together a prototype, test it, market test it. Yeah. Advertising. Yeah. Uh huh. So, so something about the fact that you couldn't get it. You had to do it yourself. So they did. So now we begin to get an inkling about why users might do these things for themselves. What you'll find is not all users, but users in a jam, necessity is the mother of invention, are often the beginning edges of major innovations. Anybody know what those circles are? What? Who's got an idea? Farms. Farms, yeah. You know what the circles are? Irrigation. Yeah. 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 I, it's not a crop circle in the traditional sense. Um, this is here it is in uh, Saudi Arabia for greater contrast. Uh, Basically, it was a major innovation in agriculture. And the great insight was that, gee, we have an aquifer in lots of areas that's not that deep. You know, it's, it's underlying our agricultural land. And what they used to do was they used to dig a well, and then they would run pipes all over the place. And then they would have to pick all the pipes up and move them over and pump again and so on and so forth. A big deal, big mess. Basically, they were using the well as a scarce resource. But what these guys figured out was, you know, we can go 20 feet down into the ground and we've got a well, so why don't we sort of make giant sprinkler systems with wells all over the place? And so that was a major sort of conceptual breakthrough, and it was done by a farmer. Now here's the first one. Isn't that cool? <coughs> Now you can see by looking at that, that again, what the farmer has done is taken stuff that was around, right? That's the old agricultural pipe. And the reason this is a favorite of mine is in one of the things I did in my misspent youth is I was actually on a ranch. 
and uh, uh, we did this process. You know, you'd actually you'd have a tractor dragging these a sort of trailer behind with these 50-foot lengths of pipe, and you'd have to throw it all off the back of the tractor in order, and then you'd have to sort of hook it all up and you spray the crops, and then you'd pick the thing up and you'd move it over 50 yards and do it all again. And uh, so, because you could never throw it out of the back of the trailer straight, these things had a little bit of a the give in the coupling, so it would do like this. So what the, what the guy did was he suspended it on these uh, uh, um, uh, frames that he welded up. Then this is the same old pipe, and this is uh, you know agricultural implement wheels, you know his old farm tractor wheels, and this is a sort of a cylinder. And what he used to do was to run the water through here and divert it into these pistons when he wanted the wheels to turn. And these wires here, basically you would set the outermost tower going like this, it would create a bend in the pipe, and that would turn the spigot on to the next one, and the whole thing would sort of go around like this. It was pretty cool, and uh, it was, of course, commercialized. Here's the commercial version. You can see it's considerably glitzed up, right? I mean, we're talking seriously fancy here. Uh, but it's the same operating principles. So I could not resist. I called up the Valmont company, which is this company here. I said, did you get any inputs from users living or dead? And they said, certainly not, my child. It's entirely our innovation from start to finish. I was like, gee, that's really interesting. So it's interesting because not only the entertaining value here of there's enough credit to go around because everybody takes it, but you'll see that it's very interesting in the sense that if companies don't understand where their innovations come from, they can't do it again. And so often when I go to these companies and I see they're aware of the importance of history and so they might even write some books about how we developed our innovations. And the fascinating thing is these histories are usually wrong. You know? Here's a few more. The World Wide Web. Okay, a user innovation. Okay. He wasn't Microsoft. He wasn't even necessarily a customer of Microsoft. It was something that he wanted. Product innovations by consumers. Personal care. Anybody know about protein-based hair conditioners and stuff like that? Know about those? I certainly don't, but anyway, you know about those? It helps the hair somehow, in some magical way. And Procter & Gamble or whoever was very proud about the idea that they had uh, come up with this. But before that, what? We're putting all kinds of stuff in their hair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eggs and, and beer and honey and, I mean, amazingly disgusting. Avocado. Mayonnaise, yeah, 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 with the same principle being involved, right? So in other words, the users had done it for themselves. Uh, sports equipment, mountain bike, you know? The mountain bike was not developed by Schwinn or a manufacturer. Does anybody know how the mountain bike was developed? It was developed by users taking a Schwinn or some other bike and saying, you know what, I'm tired of riding down the road. I think what I'm going to do is ride down a mountain. So they ride down the mountain on this bike and the bike would fall apart. And they'd bring it to the dealer and they'd say, hey, uh, there's a warranty on this, right? The dealer would say, uh, yeah, looks a little crushed to me. What did you do with it? Well, I wrote it down a mountain. Oh, well, warranty void. You shouldn't write it down mountains. It's not for that. So basically, what then happened was that these kids started improving the bikes, making them better, making them stronger. Every time they fell apart, they'd fix them up. And eventually, you ended up with a mountain bike. And manufacturers came in. Okay. So now, I want you to think about it. Here's your exercise. Identify your own examples of user innovation. What we want to do here is test this idea out in your own minds. Okay? So what I'm proposing is in, for five minutes, you take a look, you talk to your neighbor about this. Think of your experiences in a firm or thinking of your experiences as a consumer. 
In the case of a firm, did a product modification by a customer ever come to your attention? And by the way, what did you do about it? Or did your firm, acting as a customer, basically modify a product sold to you or develop something for themselves? And as a, cust as a user, if you don't think about those, do you really care about something like a sport or a type of cooking? Did you ever modify a commercial product you bought? Okay. So say hello to your neighbor, good plan, and tell them about an innovation you did or know about that's a user innovation. Test this idea out. Okay, let's see. Who's got something wonderful? Usually what happens at this point is that you volunteer the person next to you. Who has something they want to share, as we say? Yes, please. Uh, I'll share a user innovation that I witnessed uh, coming up as a child. Uh -huh. And that is I went to, grew up in Philadelphia, and we used to listen to a lot of records um, and uh, on turntables. And at that time, a lot of people around my neighborhood figured out, kids, that if you took the record and you manipulated it, you'd get these scratching sounds. Uh -huh. So after a while, but the problem was the needle was the turntable wasn't built to do that, so the needle would skip because there wasn't enough enough pressure on it to keep keep it steady. Oh, yeah. So we would take a penny and usually take some tape and put uh, or even gum at a particular part, put it underneath of it, and you know it would actually help the needle stay still. And also, as a problem as far as the record couldn't there was too much friction between the record and the turntable, so we put one record on top of the other. But of course, that messes up your records over time. Soon, this whole little industry developed where they start making turntables with weighted uh, needles, you know, for so that you could do this little scratching sound on it. You have felt products that came out that you put underneath the record that allowed it to, to, to go back and forth. And with the digital era that's that's arising now, someone told me recently because there was a problem that you could manipulate records this way. But you couldn't really manipulate, say, CDs. So people would go to the party, and you'd have to take all these heavy records, you know, up the stairs of the big speakers, etc. Now they've come out with a product. I understand that the needle actually is able to read. Um, I guess you know whatever you have as far as your digital music. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have something like an iPod device now instead of carrying all these records, but in, in, in uh, some type of storage device. Uh -huh. um, and then the needle would read, read off the storage device off these two, still look like turntables. Right, right. And you could do all your mixing, et cetera, at a yeah, party, yeah, yeah. and you don't have to carry all the, all the records. This but again, cool. it's an innovation that happened with little kids. Cool. It was very innocent. It was like, oh, that's a cool thing to do. That is so cool. Yeah. That's very good. And I'm sure the manufacturers would have looked at you in utter horror. That's not what you do with a record. Remember, they were spending their time saying, here's how you clean them. Remember? <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Who else has got another one? Anybody? Well, I know he's got such a topper there that you have to <laughs> You're reevaluating yours. Brina. Brian. Um, I, heard, I read about this, but I haven't seen it yet. But on the main campus, a lot of students have this problem where you have to run up and down your um, your, your like, dorm just to go get your laundry back and forth. And so what they did was they wired up all the laundry machines and dryers to the web. And so what it does, it tells you which machines are available or how many minutes are left. And it'll send you a message and say, oh, your laundry's done. So people know exactly when to run up and down the stairs. So I think they're going to try to commercialize this. They're talking to manufacturers to commercialize this. But it was just an innovation they did in the, in the dormitories on, on the main campus. Campus. That's so cool. You mean some particular kids did that? A, a couple of students did that. Uh, students? Uh-huh. That is so good. That is so good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm sure. That is so great. Yes. And again, the manufacturer didn't do it. No. No. So it's a wonderfully clever idea. Now, why do you suppose that the users did it? Right, and if the laundry sort of sits there for a long period of time, somebody might take it out and put it somewhere else, and then you know who knows what happens and all the rest <laughs> of that, right? So in a sense, they were high need, because if you live in a suburban house, hey, you don't have that problem, right? So again, it's this sort of like this, like the police car thing. It's sort of the high need people that start to do something about it. That's great. Now, did others of you not have something that matches up to these wonderful things, or you couldn't think of anything at all? Where do we stand? 
Uh, where do we stand? Cheng. Well, um, just now I was discussing another one thing I can think about is uh, how Cisco came about, which is uh, user innovation, where actually, as far as I understand, during the 80s, uh, most of the campus within Stanford are not linked to each other. But this these two PhD students who fell in love and they decided to create these two black box so they can send love message to each other. And that's how the Cisco router came about. So they created that and it came out and formed Cisco. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, but that would be absolutely a user innovation. Does anybody else know about that one or no? Can corroborate or no? Okay, so Radan, what about you? Got any ideas? The example that I have is a bit uh, technical or convoluted, so uh -oh. I'll try my best to explain it. Um, I worked for Lucent Technologies, and we had, uh, we had invented a device which would take multiple wavelengths of light and multiplex it into one fiber. This is called DWDM, Dense Wavelength Division Multiplexing. The problem was making these devices, uh, the operators had to deal with many different channels of light, putting it in and taking it out, and the thing was a bit finicky. So depending on how you put in the fiber connectors, you would get a different readout as to what is the attenuation or what is the optical loss going through this device. So they ended up just cutting off the connectors and using the bare fiber and putting it in the test device. Um, our manufacturer of the test instrument realized that we're just cutting these connectors and then reconnectorizing it at the end. So they, they modified their equipment to be able to accommodate our needs and just accept bare fiber instead of the optical uh, connectors. Huh. Okay. And did you in-house sort of use the initially... Uh, so it was you, you were chopping it off in the field, I guess. We're chopping it up when we were manufacturing it. Oh, when you're manufacturing so, so imagine it. the connectors at the end of this. Right. Instead of having to twist right, the right, thing right. and shove it in, shoving it in, we just used the wire. Right. Now, so did you modify their equipment for your we own modified. purposes? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay, so first you modified it as users. Right. Perfect example then. Yes. Because it wasn't just that you sat there and thought, God, you guys, you really ought to do something. You actually just went ahead and did it. Right. And then the manufacturer said, what a good idea I just had. Yes, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Well, you know, these are good. Now, does anybody sort of feel stuck in this matter? Because it's good to have your own example. Does anybody feel stuck or do you all have sort of some example in mind that, yeah, this might really make sense. What I'm trying to do here is create for you your own personal hooks to what's otherwise an abstract idea, right? So does everybody else have something? Yes, yes, you're not going to say no, are you? Uh, yes, please. I'm not sure if it fits like the first Sorry? one. I want to try one of my examples with so it fits the first, um, first yes, question okay. here. Uh -huh. uh, have you ever heard of the Taibo exercise program? It's like the one that combines like yoga, Arabic um, boxing, and like Chinese like way of Kung Fu together. Yeah. Like, I think it's come from because like the one who created his name is Billy Blank. He, maybe he's not satisfied with like each program separately, so he combined all the skill together and create a new exercise program that like that help like reduce weight and keep you healthy and have muscles together something yeah, like that. Yeah. And he commercialized that, uh -huh. and he keep like add like minor adjustments. It like in 2004 program he add like the resistant ball and to the program and resell it again something like that. <clears throat> okay, so that's a good one in the following sense. You know, what we're after here is sort of the, the motivation of the person or firm doing it. And so what you've got there is maybe that person had a combined motivation. You wanted to sell it as well, right? Yeah. Now, that would still be a user innovation if it's sort of the motivation came afterwards. But in any case, for us conceptually, the idea is that probably that person had to be actually doing it to even know sort of what was wanted. Rather than doing a survey of all his friends or something, he himself sort of had the idea that this is what I need. Okay? And as we'll see as we go on later, this is a major part of why user innovation works. It's because you yourself have a deeper sense of what you want than you can transmit to other people. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do is now go... Um, here are a couple other examples. Um, instant messages 
You know instant messaging where, where AOL said they developed it? Do you remember that? Instant messenger, so cool. Well, it's done at MIT many years ago. The lab in computer science had thousands of Athena workstations online and difficulties diffusing admin information, like we're going to take down the system quickly. So they developed an instant message system to get it out to people, but then people started to play with it. The MIT students said, just like your, I love that laundromat story, the, the MIT students began to use it for general instant messaging. And then other university adopted it. And then finally, a firm started to commercialize it. Now notice, again, these time lags, right? Ten years. If we have some efficient way to identify user innovation, instead of just standing there and waiting for it to sort of grow and finally beat down the doors, then we will have developed an innovation system that can capture the real source of major innovations. So um, there's plenty of room in there, again, with that time lag. And again, incentive story here. It's so cool. Do you know what Wi-Fi is? Don't you? Right? You know, you go down to your local cafe and you, you can use Wi-Fi and so you can wire, wire, in fact, you've probably got Wi-Fi right now and you're doing your email. Who knows? Well, users did that. Okay? There's this guy, as the story goes, I don't know this story firsthand, but secondhand, there was this guy who knew about antenna engineering. And so they had these little wireless pods you can use in your house. You know, some of you probably have those wireless network thingies. And he noticed that if he put a Pringles can on this thing, which is made out of foil, it was, it was a much better antenna. Okay, so he would put Pringles cans on those little ears sticking up, and then he could go down to his local internet cafe and sit there and do his work. Okay. Then he noticed that other people, he told his chums, and everybody started using this thing, and it didn't bother him. They were sort of going through his drop, but he didn't care. And it became the first sort of hot spot. So then users started to modify these antennas. They got beyond <coughs> Pringles cans to things that would reach out a mile or so. And widespread implementation occurred. Travelers find hotspots as they travel. And the fascinating thing here was that this was starting to happen. And I was traveling with a guy from a uh, telecom company. And uh, we were talking about Wi-Fi. And he said, oh, it'll never happen. He said, it's not reliable, and also there's no security. He said, oh, OK, I see. And besides, he said, they're stealing services. OK. <laughs> and he said, we were driving down the Caramel Highway on the uh, coast. He said, excuse me a minute, I've got to pull to the side. Why is that? Oh, I've got to do my email. I know there's a hot spot over here. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he was perfectly busy you know, doing his email. He was all happy and done. And he said, but there'll never be a need. You know? So one of the things you'll see again is not only to get the cool idea, but somehow to get it through the filters in your company to be able to actually sort of implement effectively.